Employment discrimination is illegal and takes many forms. Religion. Race. Workers' compensation claims. Gender. Age. Disability. If you believe your employer has illegally fired or retaliated against you, contact us. Protecting your employment rights. Why we do what we do. The Law Offices of Stephen New. Back, ladies and gentlemen, here in Greensboro at the Coliseum, Jim Ross with the Dynamic Dudes. I know Jim Cornette is first and foremost on your mind. Jimbo, the Dynamic Dudes are excited about Christmas because this is the season to be jolly. Midnight Express and Jim Cornette, you're not going to like any of the presents we have in store for you because the Dynamic Dudes are playing Santa Claus. But thanks a lot for that $10,000 we took off you. Is that right, this uh, paper's got my curiosity aroused, Shay. No, Jimbo, fair is fair. The Midnight Express has been complaining that they want a chance back at the $10,000. Well, you know something? You don't get nothing for nothing, Midnight Express. Jim Cornette, if you're so smart, like you always say you are and you run that mouth, well, you'll come out here later on tonight. What I'm holding right here, Jimbo, you asked about it, is a piece of paper for a match next week right here on television. And anything goes match, Jimmy Cornette, because the dynamic dudes aren't backing down from anybody. If you're as smart as you say you are, and you don't back down from anybody, Jim Cornette, well, then come out here and sign this contract, because we're waiting. Welcome to Franchise with Shane Douglas. Franchisees, welcome back to your favorite podcast and mine, Franchised with Shane Douglas. Happy Holidays. Merry Christmas. Merry Kwanzaa. And whatever else you might be celebrating. Hanukkah. Uh, there's probably 15 or 20 different other holidays that are going on right now. And I just want to say happy whatever you're celebrating to you. And happy holidays to you too, Franchise. What's up, Shane Douglas? What about for those of us who don't celebrate anything? They're just sort of making it like it's another day of the week. Ah, uh, humbug. Oh, well, <laughs> happy day of the week to you. <laughs> Just kidding. Love the holidays. It's, uh, you know, it, it, if it weren't for my boys, it would be just another day of the week. But uh, having two sons and watching them Christmas has always been one of the highlights of the year. Kids do make it special, man. I, I lost the, the specialness of, of Christmas so many times, but kids just bring it right back to you. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, they... Yeah, just to watch, of course, my kids are getting a little bit older, but yeah, just to watch the wonder, you know, remembering every year, they'll seem like those same young kids that they were, you know, just a few years ago, you know, watching the sparkle in their eye, and it's just the total magic of it, you know, it's just amazing to me. For sure, for sure. So let's talk about last week's episode. Man, I got a big, huge response from the Chris Benoit episode. A lot of people talking about all sorts of things, including the con- the conspiracy theories that uh, that were out there. Did you get any feedback from last week's episode? Yeah, I had about three people as I was out about for the holiday season. I mentioned it, and I got a congratulations on the uh, podcast from a couple of people. You know, so it definitely started to increase the penetration. Something I have to bring up to you, even though I, I, you know, we've already done the episode and we didn't talk about this, but there's an interesting thing that was sent to me by one of the franchisees, and I want to get your opinion on it. Did, okay, let's, let's run it. Okay, so Chris Benoit and Daniel Bryan have this thing 
where they are running parallel to each other. Do you know anything about that? No, I don't. Well, they're both technical wrestlers. They both have right. similar move sets, including diving headbutts and cross faces. They both yeah. held a world title less than a day. They both married a wrestler. Hmm. They both lost their world title to Randy Orton at SummerSlam. They both made their debut in a group. Uh, the Radicals, of course, with Chris Benoit, Nexus with uh, Daniel Bryan. Um, they were both featured in a tag team title match at WrestleMania, well, WrestleMania 19 for Chris Benoit, WrestleMania 29 with Daniel Bryan. Then they both won the world title in the main event of WrestleMania in a triple threat by the crossface submission. That's pretty interesting. Uh, Chris Benoit was at WrestleMania 20. Daniel Bryan's was at WrestleMania 30. Both the opponents are uh, both of the opponents were in a faction at one time. DX for Chris Benoit, Evolution for Daniel Bryan. They both fought Kane in a pay-per-view later and they both uh, fought in a ladder match, uh, one at WrestleMania 21, the other at WrestleMania 31. What a weird coincidence there. Yeah, well, I, I always you know, half-jokingly say I don't believe in coincidences, but that, yeah, that's really strange. It's like the comparisons between uh, Lincoln and Kennedy's assassinations. Yes, it is. Uh, Very much so. Yeah, you know, really, really odd set of coincidences that line up like that. But, you know, I, I guess it's, somebody talked to me one time about this and said, you know, and right now as we're recording this, how many human being interactions are going on around the planet? And uh, you, you can see how it's possible, but still it's eerie when you hear it lined up like that and spoken, especially in a, in a fraternity as small as professional wrestling. Because, hey, let's face it, in, in the last 50 years, how many wrestlers, how many people on the planet have had the chance to have high-level careers like that, and then to see those kind of coincidences line up, you know, head to head, it seems pretty eerie. Yeah, all ten years apart. I mean, it's it's pretty nuts. Uh, when I was looking into it, and someone had sent that to me, and was like, "Why didn't you ask Shane about this?" And I was like, "Man, I should have." So that's that's yeah. pretty interesting. Pretty interesting. But yeah, we got a really yeah. big uh, bunch of. Bunch of messages about the Chris Benoit episode. Everyone seemed to uh, to like it. Some people were were hating on the fact that we even brought up the conspiracy theories. And for those of you who didn't want to hear about conspiracy theories for Chris Benoit, I, I don't know what to tell you. Uh, I mean, I know that uh, I wanted to talk about them and I wanted to get your response from them. And I know a lot of listeners love to hear about them, so uh, we were we were going to do it. So, <laughs> well, I, I, but on, I mean, honestly, you can't. You know, you talk about the 900-pound elephant in the room, right? I mean, the, the, these are the things that people online talk about. Doesn't make it true. Doesn't make it right. Doesn't make it wrong, black, white, purple. It's, it, these are the things that people talk about. I, too, sometimes get a little bit un uncomfortable talking about the conspiracy theories because, like I said, how many times I prepped things last week saying, you know, if this are true and would like to see the, the documents and, you know, because there are so many dangling participles loosely floating around out there that some of those points that you brought up last week, things that I didn't know, you know, it's, if we offended anybody, it certainly wasn't the intention, but it is to let people know that these are the things that more than one or two people are talking about. Again, there was no 
confirmation or validation of any of those conspiracy theories. But in fact, several of them I had never even heard of until you brought them up. Again, I, I guess because of just the, the overwhelming tragedy aspect of it and the insanity of it, those of us that knew Chris, I think, fumble with trying to make understanding of it. And that's, I think, where a lot of that kind of stuff pops up. Yeah, I got a lot of messages about the 911 call that we played at the end of the episode, which was the 911 call from uh, from WWE to the police asking for a, a wellness check. And a lot of people yeah. had never heard that before. And I, I think that was a pretty cool thing to share with the listeners because a lot of people were, were really, uh, really happy to hear it. Yeah, I, I, I hadn't ever heard that, you know, and, and many of those things last week I hadn't. And, you know, I'm not the guy that sits on the computer every day reading everything that comes across. But, you know, there's somebody that knew Chris so well and Nancy uh, and Daniel. You know, to hear those types of things, that's why I said, you know, you know, kept saying and then peppering the conversation with, if this is true, I, I would love to get a look, see at the documents, at the official investigation document notes and things, just to, just to be able to say, okay, this is bullshit, this is bullshit, but this is legit. And, and then to be able to dig through, because there's got to be an answer for it. If, again, if, if that 911 call is legitimate, and neither you or I know if it was, but if, if, if there is anything to that, there needs to be an official explanation as to how, how that happened and occurred. I don't know that much about how cell phone operates. Is it possible to send something today and it get lost in the ether world? So who knows? But, uh, no, no, this the nine one one call. The nine one one call one hundred percent was legit. It was it was from uh, an employee of the WWE calling nine one one to go check on Chris. So yeah, that that was definitely legit, and we played that at the end of the episode. And you know, having an episode that serious, I mean, that was a very serious episode for us. And normally we we try to stay lighthearted and and throw in some jokes here and there, but that was a serious episode. This week's episode, we're gonna have some fun because we're talking about the dynamic dudes. And uh, there's definitely plenty of things to laugh at in that situation, especially your pictures. <laughs> Come on, man. There was a time and a place when the mullet ruled the world. That, that, that is true. The mullet was quite a hairstyle in the 80s. And, uh, and we're going to talk about mullets and much more here in just a few minutes. But I want to tell you that at the end of this episode, not only am I going to give you five different tasks for you to go and get qualified for the Flying with the Franchise contest, but I'm also, for the first time ever, going to lay out four upcoming episodes the next four episodes you will know what they are all about at the end of this episode here damn gotta stick around yes you do you have to stick around and you're gonna want to stick around because today we are talking about the dynamic dudes and i'm excited to uh, get started so if you're ready to roll i'm ready to roll as well hell yeah let's do it the year is 1989 and you just showed up in the nwa how long were you there before they started pairing you up with John Laronitis, a.k.a. Johnny Ace? I can't remember specifically off the top of my head. I don't believe it was long. You know, I'd gotten there, had returned uh, from, uh, let me think here. I'm trying to get it all straight in my head because it all sort of runs together. But, you know, we had gotten there and we were sort of, you know, we were all hanging around. You know, me, Pillman, Zank, uh, Johnny Ace. Later, well, later Pillman, you know, it's uh, they, they were talking about, I remember the time that the tag team division was, was starting to, 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 to lack off a little bit, slack off a little bit. They were lamenting the fact that they didn't have a, another Rock and Roll Express. I mean, go figure, right? I mean, how many Rock and Roll Expresses has come along? Right. Yeah, it's like, like lightning in a bottle. But they were looking for somebody to appeal to young girls and the kids, much in the way that Rock and Roll Express did. And... 
that at least that was the way it was originally pitched to, to, to us. Now, when you guys first got together, you had a different name than the Dynamic Dudes. What what was that name? We debuted on a pay per view, uh, Music City Showdown. That was the pay per view where Terry Funk uh, pal drove uh, Ric Flair through the table in Nashville, and we were the opening match. I believe it was on. It, was, it aired. We were the opening match on air when the pay per view went live with the uh, Samoan SWAT team and uh, Fatu and Sammy. And, you know, those guys were just a phenomenal tag. And they had Paulie Heyman with them as their manager, you know, who would come to play a little instrumental role in my career later as their manager. And we wrestled the first match with them. And those guys, all those, like I always talk about the Samoan family. It's like they're born with the, with the genetics or something because I've never seen any of them half-assed or bad at what they do. They're all phenomenal at it. Sammy and Fatu really bumped their asses off and got their heat and got us over in the process. But we debuted on that show as Johnny and Shane. It was either the next generation or the new generation. I've never been able to recall which one it is specifically because everywhere now that you see it, it's listed as the Dynamic Dudes. It doesn't say uh, what we originally aired at. So if there's any of uh, the franchisees out there that know or have uh, you know proof, uh, you know a screenshot or something, of whether it was new generation or next generation. I'd love to see that. So Jim Cornette credits Jim Ross for this idea in an attempt to create uh, another Rock and Roll Express, like you said. I've heard you say different. Who actually came up with the Dynamic Dudes gimmick? Oh, good, uh, good question. I know the name came from Jim Hurt. Eddie Gilbert was, was still there involved in the booking. I can't remember if he was like an assistant booker, or but he was definitely involved in the booking. Uh, you know, Eddie had been a big fan of mine, thank God. He was the one who gave him my break in the business, and you know, I credit him with it. If it hadn't been for Eddie Gilbert, you probably would never heard of Shane Douglas. But he uh, he was instrumental in the booking at that time. I don't know where the original... Uh, concept of the of the actual tag team came from that's the first i'd ever heard that about jim ross quite possible because he was also involved in the booking committee at the time uh but it was eddie gilbert who had alerted us the day after the music city showdown about jim Hurd's new name and i i honest to god thought it was a joke because as a young kid i'm thinking hey we've already aired on tv last night on a pay-per-view as as next or new generation you know, eddie gilbert if you didn't know him had a real wry sense of humor he said he was sitting in the front seat of the van taking us to the airport and he said well how'd you hear your new name and it, you know i'm thinking in my head we've already aired it last night so okay I'll, it must be a joke he's ribbing me so i said okay i'll, I'll bite what, what's what's the new name eddie and he said the dynamic dudes and i started laughing and johnny started laughing and eddie never turned around and then about Ten seconds of laughter went by, and he turned around, and he had that deadpan Eddie Gilbert face. And that's when you knew, it's sort of like the Arn Anderson look-over-the-glasses look. He, that's when you knew he was serious. And I said, please tell me your fucking ribbon. And he, he didn't answer me. He shook his head no. And I said, that's the, that's the shits. You know, I said, who came up with that? And he, that's what he told me, that uh, Jim Hurd had commissioned a study in California with the belief that everything that starts in California works its way uh, eastward. And what, you know, what the big words of the year were that year. And the top two words were dynamic and dude. And like, hey, dude, that's dynamic. So Jim Hurd, in his infinite Pizza Hut pizza wisdom, uh, uh, I'm wondering if he's the one that came up with the stuffed crust because that's you know that was a pretty big thing back then. But uh, anyway, uh, you know that's where the the name came from. It, It was such a bad name that Eddie that day in the van is when he first postulated the idea of making Johnny and I heels, and you know 
do do it as it was done for like a six month period, get the heat that we saw it get, and then turn us into heels. Of course, that that never came to fruition, but that that all came that all took place in the in the airport van from the hotel uh, to the airport that morning, the morning after Music City showed up. So is that basically the pitch? Is that all the pitch you got? Is like, hey, you're going to be the dynamic dudes and deal with it? Well, they uh, now you know now that I think about it, Jim Ross did have a lot of uh, I shouldn't say a lot, but he had some specific directions. And I believe it was written into our contracts. So I'd have to go back and look, but we were supposed to both be in tanned. Uh, that's why I had to uh, uh, lighten my hair to match Johnny's. We had to look like each other. I believe the contract had something about you know having abs and stuff like that. Well, I was pretty you know pretty into the gym. Johnny was not. You know, so I would catch hell all the time. You know, you know, hey Johnny, I said, hey, I'm in the gym. You know, you talk. I'm, I'm not his babysitter. You know, Johnny liked to do what Johnny liked to do, and, and the gym wasn't a big part of that. You know, but we used to catch hell. I, I used to catch hell for that, even though I was busting my ass in the gym. All right, so at this time, Ric Flair is on the booking committee for the NWA, and you go to him to try and change the plan for yourself. How does that go? Bristol, Tennessee. We were in Bristol that next night. As I recall, there was a dressing room area, and then there was a like a wooden staircase that went up to another level. Rick was dressing up there, and I, there was a couch, and there was a, you know, it wasn't like a neatly furnished dressing area or anything. It was like a like an upstage upstairs storage space or something. And there was a couch in there. He was lying on the couch whenever I went up the stairs. He was in his gear. He had his boots and tights and, and a T-shirt on. And I said, hey, I talked to Eddie this morning on, you know, on the way to the airport. He told me about this new name. And I said, man, that's really the shits. And, you know, can you please do something about it? And before I could even finish the sentence, he said, hey, it's out of my hands. There's not a thing I can do about it. You know, now let, let's look back from where we sit today. I mean, I knew at the time it was bullshit. But let's look from where we sit back. Know what we know today looking back. If Ric Flair, the nature boy, would have gone as the booker, quote unquote, at that time, the head of the booking committee. Had he gone to Jim Hurd and said, Jim, look, you want these kids to get over, you got to take this name off and this is not going to get over. Because Ric Flair certainly knew at that point that it wouldn't work. That, you know, Anybody with any brain in their head for this business would have known that. So now knowing Rick like I know Rick, you know, his quick dismissal of, hey, I can't do a thing about it. Uh, I don't know if that was, you know, part of him trying to anchor the team or if it was him just being, hey, I don't, you guys are so beneath me and unimportant. I don't have to get pissed with this shit. But it was one of those two. <laughs> there was, it, it was either, either or. It wasn't like a litany of, of, of decisions or options that are there. You know, I, and when I say that out loud and I hear myself say that, I go back to what I always say about guys like Rick in, that, in those positions. WCW was paying him a boatload of money at the time. Whether you're Booker or just on-air talent or some combination thereof like Rick was at the time, I think it's incumbent on us to make sure that the company makes that money back. My thinking being, if I paid Brian Resner a million dollars or 750, I think is what Rick was making at the time, 750,000 per year, and I've given you these responsibilities, I expect you to return, give me return on the dollar. I don't want to make back 749. You You know, at least if not multiples, right? You know, looking at how Rick handled that, you know, I think it just showed pretty much what my feeling is now is that they, you know, guys like him were in it for themselves, not looking out for the advancement of the company and the young talent. Because let's face it, a guy like Ric Flair, uh, you know, nobody knows my personal feelings, but he remains one of the all-time greats. Uh, But at that time, he was literally the measuring stick in the business. And certainly could have imbued 
some of his ideas and, and ability on some of the younger talent. What, why he did that, you know, you'd have to ask him if you'd ever get a straight answer. Because like I've said before, he was Rick fucking Flair. No, you could have taken every great, you could have taken me, Steve Austin, Brian Pillman, Tom Zank, Johnny Ace, put us in a blender, and we weren't going to take ever take his spot. Nobody could. He's one of those ensconced greats. Like if there's if there's a Mount Rushmore of wrestling, Ric Flair is certainly on it, and and would be no matter what happened or occurred. So why he chose to not relay some of that ability to the younger talent? Now I don't mean you got to sit here and tell us how, how how to be a great worker like you because there's no way to guarantee that anyway but you could certainly as especially as booker i think it's incumbent and responsible upon you to watch the the matches and say hey kid here's where you're fucking up try doing it like this instead of like that and flair never did any of that so now i i don't think that they're counting your first uh your first encounter that you were talking about with the samoan swat team in your run here because it says here that May 6, 1989 is when you make your debut as the Dynamic Dudes. And you're taking on George South and the Raider. You think George South is the most respected jobber of all time? Probably up there. You know, George is a great guy. He was one of those guys that had the ability and I think could have easily gone on the road and, and you know, carved out of a niche for himself. He was more about staying home and, and you know, wanted he, he didn't want that life. He you know, wanted to spend time with the family and, and you know, and, and start his family and all of that. Nothing wrong with that. That was his decision. But George's abilities, you know, you still see George out working and getting some great reaction. And, you know, so, yeah, I think he clearly could have been, anything he wanted to be in the business as much as he wanted to put it into it clearly he's one of those guys that you know every wrestling fan that watched the nwa starting way back then and then wcw later knows who george south is that was what was sort of neat about that generation and that time frame in the business was there were those handful of guys that were you know the enhancement talents that were almost on par and of, of, of knowledge by the fans as some of the some of the stars on the card you know think of the the twin brothers the uh the collie twins uh the two twin brothers you got me i was like seven years old at this time so i don't i'm not sure okay uh, randy and uh i just saw them at, at wrestle k last year great guys there was that sort of uh, same thing back in uwf we had chud right the cannibalistic human underground dweller that you know that had a, like a connection to fans mikey whipwreck later in ECW, Paul took a twist on that and put the belt on him and really got him over with it. You know, so yeah, I think George South was was you know obviously you know successful at what he did, one of the best at what he did, and and could have carved out a much bigger career for himself had he had he sought to go on the road. So who was under the hood as the Raider? Uh, the Raider? Well, you got me. I, I don't remember the Raider. Uh, <laughs> really? Looked like a much smaller version of the Spoiler. Hmm. No idea. I remember Doug Gilbert with a hood, but I can't remember the name of the gimmick. Yeah, too many chair shots. You, you, you start, if you start looking for specifics like that for me, you're, <laughs> you're going to find that, that those specifics are typically not there anymore. Well, uh, is the memory of this match there at all? Like, do you remember your debut and or as the Dynamic Dudes? you remember anything about that match? Well, you said that, because as I remembered it, you know, I, I remember the Simone SWAT team. But my guess is that they would have probably had a TV taping before that and had several matches. I remember the the first matches that we did, the first taping that we did as the dudes, uh, and I couldn't recall if that was before or after the pay-per-view, but I remember they wanted us to go out and try several different finishes. 
So each match, we I think it was like three or four matches that night, and we did different finishes until we started feeling more comfortable which one looked the best and which one was easiest to get into and out of and that sort of thing. So my guess is that's probably the night that would have happened, that we would have been at a TV taping prior to the paper, probably just days before the pay-per-view. What was the date on the pay-per-view? I'm not sure about the date on the pay-per-view, for, but from my records, it says that you faced the Samoan SWAT team the very next night on May 7th. Okay, well, there you go. That's right. So I'm right. Yeah, it would have been real tight with the tapings. And but remember, there was a point, and I can't remember how long it was, but there was like in the weeks, maybe months leading up to that, Johnny and I were much like Dean Douglas launch. Johnny and I were off all around Atlanta going and shooting vignettes. Yeah, I've seen those you vignettes. Know, <laughs> yeah, you know, corny as hell, and that was what the company wanted. But, you know, Johnny did something that was way beyond my thinking at the time. We were out, and they sent us out with the director. It might have been Craig Levins. I can't remember specifically, but they had a crew with us, and they sent him out with the corporate credit card. And Johnny said, hey, let's see let's see how much, if they, if they you know, try to tell us, you know, don't buy that it's too much or too expensive. And so we would go into like a skater shop, you know, Johnny would just start grabbing two of these and four of these and one of these and some of them and some of these. And, you know, like two, three, four thousand dollars worth of stuff. And they never bulked. They just kept slapping that credit, that, that Turner credit card down, you know, and that was uh, our way to see like how, how committed they were to the tag team. And, uh, and so we did those vignettes. I remember for at least several weeks, we were around the Atlanta region and that general area, you know, going to different places and shooting, you know, jet skiing and, you know, doing things, uh, you know, in the mall and, you know, just different places where kids would be hanging out. And then that TV taping. So you could see like in that progression, whatever the time frame was of those videos into that TV taping. And then the Simone SWAT team on pay-per-view that there was a, a quick ascension as to how they were going to bring this this uh, new tag team to market and get it over. Can you just imagine Jim Hurd saying, no, spare no expense for the dynamic dudes? <laughs> yeah, or, or I think at that time, it was probably preceded by a matter of days or hours. Jim's stroke of genius, <clears throat> like Vince McMahon's <clears throat> genius, before he came up with the dynamic dudes, because, again, we were – that'd be, that'd be an interesting trivia question. Did we – do those TV tapings must have, because I'd never heard the name dynamic dudes until that day in the van. So we must've done those initial TV tapings as Johnny and Shane, the next or new generation. So you got the neon swimming trunks with matching hats, the sunglasses, the belly shirts, the skateboards, the corny vignettes on the beach. You have to absolutely hate this shit, right? Yeah. It didn't feel comfortable to me at all because again, it's not who I am. You know, I've often talked in the past, everybody that's ever followed my career interviews often talked about, you know, when you give somebody something that's really not them, you can see that, you know, it sort of bleeds through the characters. And that's where I think the WWE got so lost in the early nineties with, you know, all the really ridiculously over the top corny cartoon style characters you know, what is a Duke, the, the dumpster Droshi? What is a Dean? You know, what is this, you know, the goon and all the rest of it? You know, if, if, if now if somebody like, like playing the goon, uh, Wild Bill Irwin, if you have, uh, if you have a guy that's been a previous NHL tough guy, he could probably play that character. But if you haven't been that guy and then trying to go out and play, all you're doing is regurgitating. I, I'm, I, I'm just going to take a guess here. And this is no slap down to Bill whatsoever. But I'm going to guess that Bill's probably watched four or five, if that, NHL hockey games in his life. <laughs> Too busy working on his Harleys. You know, so you can see how that could be a stretch for him to go out and portray that kind of a character. 
you know, I was not a skateboarder. I was not a skater dude, you know, and what we came to find out in very short order was uh, when they sent us on the road, we would always go into the towns early. Me, Tom Zank, uh, Brian, Johnny, I think Brad Armstrong was typically there, maybe Tim Horner. But they would send us in, you know, if we were going to be in San Francisco tonight at the Cow Palace, uh, we, you know, we'd be there at one or two o'clock in the afternoon doing a meet and greet, try to stimulate ticket sales. And, you know, we'd sit there and sign autographs and take pictures and so on. And on that day, in, I, I believe it was San Francisco, a couple kids came through. Then it was like they were speaking Greek. You know, they, they, they were speaking a language that was English, but it wasn't English. Neither Johnny or I had any clue what the hell they were saying. Well, they were speaking uh, in skater speak. I looked at Johnny. He looked at me. Neither of us knew what the hell they were talking about. It wasn't like just a word or two changed. It was like complete sentences that you had no idea what you were saying, what they were saying. <laughs> and at that moment, you could see the look on their faces was like, I mean, we're posers. <laughs> Straight you know, up and, posers. And they, yeah. Yeah. And they knew it. Well, as far as skateboards go, you've said that you never rode yours. But Johnny, I guess, was the Tony Hawk of the duo. <laughs> I'm about choke taking a drink. You saying that? Uh, uh, well, I guess between the two of us, he was probably closer to a Tony Hawk, but he was probably about as close to Tony Hawk as I am to being uh, LeBron James. Oh, you can <laughs> play basketball that well, huh? Yeah, I'm pretty well. No, not really, but uh, <laughs> probably the same vein. But hey, straight up, he was much better at it than me. But I got to rephrase one thing you said that you said that I'd never ridden the, the board. I, I did uh, in the parking lot of the Ramada Inn where we lived in, in uh, Atlanta in College Park. Was out in the in the drive you know, the, the parking lot in the back, you know, working on it and you know getting okay at it. And then there was you know a pretty long sloping hill that went down. So I went down on that after a, you know a couple hours of fooling around out there, and I hit one of the speed bumps and I literally went up about six feet in the air and came down and took a bump on the concrete and i stood and said fuck this thing i'm riding this goddamn thing again that was it that was the last time i rode it was in that parking lot from then on you were a skateboard carrier and 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 i might say probably one of the best skateboard carriers in the history of the business i I can i can attest to that so a little over a month later in june you have two matches with the fabulous Freebirds. One of which is a world tag title match. Now you guys lose both of these, but getting a title shot this early did that piss anyone off in the dressing room? Yeah, I, I think it. I, not so much Jimmy. Jimmy was pretty laid back and pretty easy going, but I, you know, Michael, I, I think was a little bit missed at it. And you know why they'd be miffed at us is beyond me because you know anybody that's professional in this business knows that whatever happens in that respect comes from the office uh, and if you have an issue with that take it up with the office but we wrestled them if i'm not mistaken i want to say one of the times was miami florida it, it, they were like really trying to eat us up you know look, look both of us johnny and i both would i i i not speak for myself and johnny we both love to sell and so the selling part of it wasn't the issue but in getting somebody over in a match you can't just eat them up and then, you know, do whatever you're going to do, especially if you're going over at the end of the match. You know, it was pretty much what they were doing, and it became sort of a bit of a slog. I remember when we came to the dressing room, Johnny had, if, if, if this is believable or not, Johnny had a hotter temper than me. Wow, he really? Would, oh, yeah, and he would snap pretty quickly. He was a pretty laid-back guy, but, you know, if, if, you, know, if you piss him off enough, he, he would blow at the right times. And never to be an asshole or anything, but certainly – to, to defend us and stick up for himself. We came into that dressing room and he was throwing shit and yelling and screaming and everything. He was pretty pissed. 
and I followed him in, of course, you know, into the room. And uh, as I recall, you know, Jimmy was pretty pretty laid back about it, you know, like nonchalant about it. But but you know, Michael was was quick to start, you know, trying to explain what they were doing as if we didn't understand. So I've heard you say on the show that this was the first time you made real money in professional wrestling. Out of curiosity, what was real money for pro wrestling in 1989? Well, for me, it wasn't ending the year spending more than you made, you know, because that's pretty much, you know, in, the, in those formative years when you're coming up in the business, you know, you're, you're, you know, what are you going to do? Go complain about your paycheck and, and tell them you're fired, you know, so you pretty much had to take what they gave you and, you know, just keep plugging away at it and keep learning your craft. At that time, uh, Johnny and I were making, I believe it was 2500 a week. I remember the way that, that Jim Hurd gave us the contracts, which didn't sit well at all with me, and, 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 I, and I know it didn't Johnny either, was we were told to come to the office one day to get our contracts. You know, Johnny and I were both young kids, you know, eager to make it in the business and eager to learn our craft, and no problem with paying our dues. But, you know, it's like I often said before about, like, the, you know, the, the, the disrespect thing. You're my boss, and I do something screwed up. I, I can take the ear beating, but don't come out and talk down to me like I'm some kind of shit you know if that's who you want then probably find somebody else like i said a second ago johnny's johnny's temple was probably a li- little bit quicker than mine at that point jim heard came out we were sitting outside of his office he came out and he didn't hand them to us he threw two envelopes like two manila envelopes with the contracts in them and he said here's your contract i won't dot one eye or cross one t that already isn't dotted or, or crossed so sign the damn things and get them back in and he walked away and i looked at johnny and he looked at me had that sort of minute of like, do we go tell him to fuck off or, 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 you know, what do we do? You know, we opted for the latter, you know, just to, you know, just go ahead and, and we looked at it and saw, you know, the money they were offering. And again, at that time, you know, we were making, if we were lucky, probably two, 300, 400 bucks a week. And so to us, young and dumb, we thought, hey, shit, two grand a week, that's a lot of money, you know, and, and went ahead and signed it. But you could see where this was heading with, with Jim, you know, and everybody's heard the story before about the last day I worked for WCW and, and my confrontation with this numbskull. This guy was so far out of his element. He might have been, you know, we derided him at Pizza Hut, but it was, a, you know, it was a very successful corporation at that time. And he probably was good at that. Clearly, he was the personification of that doesn't translate over into sports entertainment or professional wrestling. All right, so you run through many teams in July and August, but in September, you would end up facing in a losing effort to the uh, skyscrapers, Sid Vicious and Dan Spivey. You had experience with Sid from the UWF, which we talk about in episode 13 in the archives, but Dan Spivey doesn't come up much. How was it working with him at this time? Uh, Dan, uh, Dan's a good guy and, and was was a pretty capable big guy. But I think what there were a couple, well, probably several things going on there. At this time, Sid, you know, because he was such a big, impressive physical specimen, really had captured the uh, the attention of the fans. As such, you know, he was, you know, sort of getting over almost like in babyface style, especially where they were running at the time. WCW was just beginning to make its forays into places like Troy, New York, Utica, New York, Rock. Chester, New York, those up, those northeast upstate New York towns that were what we call heel towns. And so here you've got this near seven foot monster that the fans really began to 
to did, you know, because he was something different from everything else that was going on around him. And I think Danny sort of got lost in that because Sid was getting over that way. Danny started doing things that Danny wouldn't typically do. You know, like you go back and watch matches with Danny wrestling, you know, Danny would you know, have decent matches and, and move around pretty well. And then all of a sudden it became, why well, can't, you know, you guys can't Irish whip me. I remember Johnny telling him one time, Johnny's about 265 at the time. He said, well, how, how much do you weigh? And he said, I think like 280 or 285. He said, you're 285 and I'm 265. Why shouldn't I be able to Irish whip you? And it just became that push point. Again, I think that was Danny trying to get into that same role that Sid was getting. And, you know, there were too many differences between them. So it became difficult at, at you know, at that point. And then in the, in the one infamous weekend up there, we wrestled in, I believe it was either Utica or Troy, where we had a TV taping. And then at the TV taping, they wanted us to ride the skateboards to the ring. Well, we've already been over my lack of acumen on the skateboard. But in this particular building, WCW had built this ramp that was about 30 feet high. And they wanted us to ride, and pretty steep. They wanted us to ride down that ramp into the ring. The problem was between the ramp and the ring, there were all kinds of TV cables and lighting cables and, you know, things running across. So I, I'm guessing, you know, it would take somebody like, like Tony Hawk to be able to ride down something like that. I was no way going to attempt that for the same reason I didn't attempt moves in the ring that I didn't know I could hit 100% of the time. Because if I go try to ride that skateboard down there and take a header, I'm going to play an absolute fool. So that was, the I think, the first night we were up there. And on that night, we were wrestling the, the two of them. Jim uh, Cornette was our manager. This is when we were, they were still doing the setup for us, preparing us for the Midnight Express. Sid, the crowd started chanting in unison, Sid, Sid, Sid. And this glaze, honestly, he was hypnotized, went over his face. And he reached down and grabbed me by the hair, like really stiff. I'm giving him the office to loosen up. He picks me up and he throws me out to the floor. And I hit the floor. Now, remember, at this time, we're not allowed to, work, to go anywhere near the railing. He, he's on the floor almost as fast as I am. I hit the floor and I roll to come up, you know, they're selling. And I see his boots hitting the mat next to, you know, the, the, the floor next to me. He grabs me by the hair again, stiff. And I look up at him, and he's got this, like, hypnotized, glazed look in his eye. And the crowd, shit, shit, shit. And he goes, I'm throwing you out. And, I'm thinking, and I said to him, we already are out. And he, in one fell swoop, a big, strong bastard picked me up like a sack of potatoes and threw me straight up in the air. I, and he threw me up 10 feet into the air. Now, I'm coming down, and the railing is underneath me. And I'm seeing the railing come, like, in slow motion. And I'm trying to contort and twist my body to try to miss this railing. And at the last minute, did what, what we would all instinctively do. I pulled my arms in to protect my rib cage. When I did my elbow, I landed on my arm on top of the railing and flipped back into the, into the uh, ringside area. And he grabbed me a third time, and I kicked him in his, in his shin. And I, I couldn't move my arm. And Jim Cornette came running around. And he said, holy shit, are you okay? And I said, I think I broke my arm. We got back in and finished the match. Sure enough, I broke my arm, and I'm done. So the next night, rather than put Danny, who was you know, more capable, WCW wanted to go ahead and put the guy that the, the, the heel towns loved, Sid. So they put Sid in a singles match with Johnny instead of Danny, who could have had a much better match with him. It was a curtain sellout. The, the, the entire dressing was at the curtain, looking through every crack in the curtain they could find, you know. Real early in the match, like within the first minute or two, he throws Johnny into the ropes and he comes charging with a clothesline and he hits him with a clothesline and you see this big crimson poof 
in the air. And Johnny's down holding his face. While they finished the match, he broke Johnny's nose. So they bring Johnny, they carry Johnny back into the dressing room, right? And he's cussing, God damn mother, son of a bitch. And Flair, who was the head of the booking committee at the time, remember, comes up and they got Johnny on like a desk. And he's going, Johnny, Johnny, relax. I gotta, let, me, let me take a look at it. Relax, Johnny. Calm, he's trying to calm Johnny down. And finally, Johnny calms down with this thing. He goes, oh, yeah, your nose is broken. And Johnny goes, oh, Jesus Christ, son of a bitch. starts going off again. And, and Flair goes, Johnny, relax. It's just a broken nose. And Johnny, in the middle of all his cousin, oh, goddamn son of a bitch. He hears Flair say it's just a broken nose. And he stops and he, he leans up on his elbow and he goes, yeah, but my face is my fucking gimmick. <laughs> the whole dressing room started busted out laughing. <laughs> so in two days, uh, Sid Vicious wiped out the dynamic dude. Well, the Freebirds give you another shot at the tag titles in October of 1989. You lose this match, but all this time with the Freebirds has got to be great for your learning process. Oh, no doubt about it. I mean, you know, you know Jimmy was more of a gimmick in, in, in the Garvin brothers uh, scheme, but he, he could, you know, play around that, you know, and, and with Precious, you know, and, and, and all the pieces there. You know, he was he was a good commodity. There was a little bit of, uh, I don't want to say herky-jerky, but there was there were two very different styles, Michael Hayes and Jimmy. You know, they, they messed it as best they could into a tag team. I, I think that they were, you know, remember at this time, now you have to put as the backdrop to all these stories that were in the midst of this booking committee. And the booking committee was comprised of different factions. And, and you know, like for instance, Ric Flair was only worried about who Ric Flair was working with. In this case, it was Sting. Jim Cornette was only worried about who the Midnight Express was working with. Jim Ross was only worried about certain things that I, that pertained to his, you know, his his commentary and things. You know, so there, it was like nobody was looking out for the over and under for the entire company. The booking committee was looking out for each of its factional parts. I think because of that, uh, Jimmy and Michael were, you know, sort of fighting for their piece of the pie. You know, thinking, well, hey, we're out here with this young team; they're not really over yet. And so did their best they could to try to eat us up. But in the midst of all that, you know, there were a lot of learning things going on in the ring. Uh, a, when somebody tries to eat you up in the ring, you know, how do you respond? How do you stop the match from going off the rails like that? I don't remember the, ma the matches with Jimmy and Michael as being particularly enjoyable. You know, there's those matches you have when you get to the ring and, it, you know, like when you work with Arn Anderson or Bobby Eaton, for instance, you know, just it's just like the, the pieces of the puzzle fall into place. And it, it was far from that with working with Michael and Jimmy. And looking back, it probably had a lot to do with what I said about the booking committee. They didn't have representation on that booking committee. And so they were doing what they had to do on a, from a professional point of view to make sure that they were noticed and make sure that they were seen. Also, like I said about Danny Spivey, the backdrop to that, the backdrop to Michael and, and, and Jimmy was that you had tag teams still, you know, that were in that Road Warrior or Steiner Brothers vein. You know, so suddenly half the locker room didn't want to take or sell suplexes or whatever. And so it became a real push and shove in the dressing room working with people like Jimmy and, and, and Michael because of that. All right, I'm going to use this time to take a quick break to remind you of our sponsor, the official attorney of Franchise with Shane Douglas, the one and only best lawyer in the world, Stephen P. New. Since 2001, drug companies dumped a billion opioid pills in West Virginia, causing over 3,000 overdose deaths and thousands of babies born addicted by no fault of their own. I'm attorney Stephen New. 
If you're the grandparent or guardian of a child born with neonatal abstinence syndrome, call me. I'll help you seek just compensation. Call the law offices of Stephen P. New at 1-844-BAD-PILLS before time runs out. Hello, Rich Quick here with another quick moment in Shane Douglas history. And this week's moment is dynamic, baby. (laughs) Yeah, see, I'm here to tell you. The 1980s were a hell of a time. We had Chernobyl, we had the Challenger, and we had the dynamic dudes. Okay, okay. They weren't that bad. You know, 30 years later, and we're still here talking about them, hmm? So you have the fresh-faced, energetic, beautifully mulleted Shane Douglas teaming with a man who I am sure is a very nice guy, but he has the charisma of cream cheese, Johnny Ace. So, why did that team fail? Was it because WCW gave a skateboarding gimmick to guys who can't skateboard? We may never know. I'm sure there are several reasons, and Shane can tell you much better than I ever could. So, we're not going to talk about that. See, we're going to talk about the fact that failure is not the finish. See, Johnny Ace went on to do very well for himself, I might say, and Shane went on to become one of the greatest heavyweight champions of all time. So, what did we talk about last week? The story of you. See, in Shane's story, the dynamic dudes are just a chapter. It was not the end. So remember this. Whatever bad times you might be going through right now in your life, it is only a chapter. It is not the end. You just keep working hard. Keep doing what you're supposed to do. Because you, you got a lot of chapters left in you, baby. See, you're going to have a big book, and we all can't wait to read it. See, sometimes life is going to knock you off your skateboard, but you just got to get back up and try again. Oh, and and for God's sakes, wear a helmet. Your mother worries about you, all right? So, until next week, this has been Rich Quick with another quick moment in Shane Douglas history. All right, like you said earlier, Jim Cornette at this time would offer to help to manage you and get you guys on the right track to victory. This help turns into quite the opposite when the Midnight Express aren't happy with this. They get in a match with you, and then uh, Jim Cornette turns on you, of course, and goes with the Midnight Express. What can you tell me about this storyline? Well, I thought it was a great story. First of all, it got us a chance to work with Midnight Express, right? I mean, you know, that, that, that was you know, just an incredible learning experience. We knew all along that's where the storyline was going. There was, there was like no ruse or anything pulled. We knew that's where the storyline was going. Initially, having Jim with us at ringside was a huge help to us because, you know, at the time we were both still young, still a little bit green. Who better to be standing at ringside than somebody who, who's, you know, managed some of the greatest tag teams at that period of wrestling. And so it was helpful to us. And then, of course, leading up to the turn, 
where we were then angled with the Midnight Express, and we got a chance to work night after night with them. And Bobby and Stan were just a dream to work with, as was Jim. You know, the rubber match never took place. The Dynamic Dudes have two victories on TV over the Midnight Express, and the Midnight Express have two victories over the Dynamic Dudes. This means the world may never know which team was the greatest. Well, I think it's a foregone conclusion, the Dynamic Dudes, right? <laughs> right. <laughs> right. They're the ones that have... The test of time. Um, yeah. yeah, I thought well, that was pretty interesting that they never got their uh, their rubber match victory over you guys. I'm curious as to why, though. I can't recall again the specific. It's been so long ago. Did I leave, or is that like during the time that I left? No. Um, well, you 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 stick around. You guys stick around for a little bit. To, not not very long after this. But I think uh, Johnny actually left before you. But we'll get into that here in just a second. Your win loss record on TV was interesting. Seventeen wins. 14 losses and one double countout, meaning 32 matches is all we had of the Dynamic Dudes. Why did we never get a Dynamic reunion? <laughs> well, it's, whenever I left, you know, I, I you know, it, it wasn't necessarily fair to Johnny, but you know, they were already planning on breaking us up. I hurt my knee working with uh, the Midnight Express in Bluefield, West Virginia at that round igloo-like building. And because the building is a little bit smaller uh, than your typical uh, uh, arenas, that particular night, unbeknownst to us, they had slid, you know, at this point we were getting used to there being mats on the floor. And the mats typically jutted out from the ringside area about six, seven feet. Bobby, and you know, you know, just as phenomenal as he was, Bobby was one of those guys that he was always exactly where he needed to be, and his timing was impeccable. I mean, just impeccable. Up there was the greatest of all time in the business. I ranked Bobby Eaton right up there. I used to do a move where I'd get the heel to, to beat on me in the corner, and Irish would be the other turnbuckle, and I would vault, you know, just one jump from the from the mat to the top turnbuckle into a, a blind cross body. Well, you can only do it with certain people, and but somebody like Bobby was a guy you could do it with and know every time he's going to be right where he needs to be. Uh, and then we would double drop kick him. He would go to the floor, and I'd have Johnny Iris whip me to the turnbuckle, and I'd bolt to the top turnbuckle and then do a flying cross body block onto, the, onto Bobby on the floor. And on this particular night, when Bobby took his bump outside the ring, Johnny comes in, Iris whips me, and I vault to the top, and I jump. During the, just one of those perfect storms, my, my knee pads had slid down. And so my knee was exposed. And when I came off, Bobby catches me and, and goes down like, you know, like you would. But on this particular night, because of the size of the venue, they had slid the, uh, the floor mats in about three feet. So where I typically would hit them, if it was any other arena, I would have hit on the mats on the floor. And, but in that building in Bluefield, because they had moved those, uh, the, the pads in, and I went down and my knee pad had slid down, my knee went into the concrete. When it did, you know, by that night, it was a like a bowling ball. And they sent me home first. I went and saw my doctor, and there was so much swelling and stuff, they really couldn't even do an MRI yet. So he drained it and wanted me to come back in a couple of days. And during that time, WCW, who had given us insurance cards, and now you'll love this, they had given us health insurance cards and, you know, bragged about the fact that they were the first company to ever give its wrestlers health insurance. They also told us when they gave us these health insurance cards that you could never say you got hurt wrestling. I guess they, they had put it in as something else, you know, not professional wrestling. Well, in the state of Pennsylvania, I'm pretty sure every other state, that's called well, that's called uh, insurance fraud. And, <laughs> right. You know, I, I wasn't about to do that. So WCW 
made me fly down and see a doctor named Dr. Allman. I went into his office. It was in a, like a professional park. He came in. Now, we've all had shots of Novocaine for our teeth and, you know, some uh, for knees and elbows. He came in and looked at it and said, you've got some blood clots in there we have to take out. So he reaches over, and he's got a couple of male nurses in there, like, holding me down. He reaches over, gets his big syringe, and I'm telling you, my doctor told me, like, don't let anybody do anything until that thing calms down because we have to get an MRI. So he reaches over. I'm telling him, I'm trying to explain to him what my doctor said. He reaches over and picks up a syringe of Novocaine, turns around and shoots it in my knees. I'm still trying to explain to him. He turns back around, puts the syringe down. And, you know, it takes Novocaine, what, three, four, five minutes to start to kick in. He gives me a shot of Novocaine, turns around, sets it down, picks up a scalpel, turns around and starts cutting my knee. And these guys are holding me down, and I'm telling them, stop, 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 because yeah, I can feel them cutting. Like, I haven't numbed up at all yet. He then turns back around and picks up this great big fish hook shaped needle and puts it in, in where he just cut, and he starts scraping my kneecap with this, uh, with this, this great big hook shaped needle. Yeah. And it's the, the pain is the pain is excruciating because I've like I said I've not numbed up yet or even begun to. I'm sitting there like cussing at him because of what he's doing, and then he pulls out of my knee this great big blood clot. It looked like it, not to be disgusting, but it looked like a great big bloody snot. And uh, that thing's hanging off the edge of that hook. Well, thanks for not being disgusting. And, uh, yeah, yeah, and, <laughs> and you know that that shut me up because I was like, holy shit, he just pulled that out of me. And uh, he told me afterwards, he said, had I not taken this out, that, that plot could have broken loose. And, you know, we know what happened to Chris Candido, you know, what, two decades later, sent me home in a brace. And, and I was off but that entire month that I was off. Uh, Jim Ross was calling me at home, you know, quite often. I don't want to say daily, but, you know, quite often. And these phone calls, all of them revolved around the same thing, trashing Johnny, trashing Sting and trashing Luger. And saying, uh, like a typical call would say, you know, the bastard's making all this big money. They're, they're lazy as shit. And they don't want to work and, you know, blah, 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 blah. Like that, those kind of calls. And he kept telling me that I, when I came back, they were splitting me and Johnny up and going to be giving me a big singles push. You know, these calls, like I said, went on for the entire month. Again, I, again, I can't say daily, but certainly several times a week at least. And the first taping that I come back for was in Baton Rouge at the uh, uh, Centerplex. I'm sitting in catering. You know, I've been walking around saying I've been away from my friends for over a month, you know, talking to everybody and everything, having a good time. We sit down for catering, and Missy Hyatt, who had just come out of the uh, production meeting, she was on the announcing team. She comes back out, and she asks to sit, and she sits with me. And, you know, I'd known Missy since, you know, before I got my break in the business. And she sits down, and she starts telling me about how awful they were talking about me in the production meeting. And my first thought was, you know, being Missy, okay, like maybe she's getting, you know, she mixed something up or whatever. And she's going, no, they were talking terrible about you in there. I'm like, wait, I, mean, I, I haven't been here for a month. So like, you know, like something ain't jiving up because of those, all those calls from Jim Ross. And now Missy's telling me that they were talking shit on me in the production meeting. So I'm really like at a loss here. So I go looking for Jim Ross. As I'm looking for Jim, I come across the... Uh, Teddy Long and Mark Callis, I mean Mark Callis in the hallway, and he's got a clipboard, and he says, okay, Shane, tonight, uh, and Matt's whatever, two, three, four, you're going to be with me and Mark. Uh, about two, two and a half minutes, he'll beat me with a heart punch. And I went, no, he won't. I said, I'll, I'll put him over. 
but he's not beating me clean like that. So, well, if you don't agree with doing that, you got to go find Jim. I said, I'm looking for him already. So I go looking for Jim again. I find Jim coming out of the, 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 uh, the, the room where they had the production meeting. And I come up to him, I said, Jim, what the fuck's going on? You've been calling me for the last month, giving me all this stuff about how you're going to give me this big singles push. And Teddy Long comes up and tells me two minutes with Mark Heart Punch, you know, what gives? And he, he, you know, he made some derisive comments and say, uh, he said, uh, stupid son of a bitch. Uh, that's not what we told him. Go find uh, Jody Hamilton, who was also on the meeting, who our production, uh, the, the, the uh, booking committee. So I go looking for Jody Hamilton. Like I'm on this wild goose chase now, you know, trying to find everybody. I finally locate uh, Jody on you know over by the Hill dressing rooms, and he's sitting you know at, at, at like you can envision the you know the, the dressing rooms with the, the makeup mirror and everything. And he's sitting there. And I walk in. I said, Jody, Jim Ross told me to come find you. He never even looked at me. He just kept looking down at his paper. And he said, Shane, this is what he said to me. Shane, if you know what's good for you, you'll do what you're told tonight, and you'll like it, or you can get the fuck out. You know, this is where this streak in me started about not eating somebody else's shit. And I sat there and thought about it for about three seconds. And I looked over and there was a garbage can sitting there. So I picked the garbage can up and threw it to Jody. And I said, you can watch me walk the fuck out then. And I went and got my bag. And uh, as I was leaving, Wahoo McDaniels was the first to meet me in the parking lot. He's going, because, you know, me and Wahoo go along pretty well. But Wahoo was a no-nonsense type of guy. And he's going, Shane, Shane, what are you, what are you doing, kid? You don't want to do this. You know, he's trying to talk me out of it. And I said, Wahoo, I said, I have all the respect in the world for you. But I am done listening to this bullshit with these people. You know, it was you know you'd hear one thing in the office, something else in the field. Tomorrow would be different than what you heard the day before, and the day after that different from what you heard tomorrow. And it was just horseshit, and it was what was killing WCW in my estimation, and what was keeping any one entity from getting over. And if I didn't know better, I have no proof of it. But if I didn't know better, knowing how things operate, this would have been the people at the top trying to keep the young hungry kids from climbing that ladder. You know, I thank Wahoo. You know, Wahoo told me if you walk out there, you're going to slam a door behind you or something. And I, I forget the exact words, but you know, along those lines, if you leave, you know, the door will be closed till you coming back. And I didn't give a shit at that point. I didn't give a shit about. I was still in the business. I didn't give a shit about. But I, I what I did know is I was done being lied to. And I thanked Wahoo and said goodbye to him. And I kept walking to my car. And Tom Zank, Brian Pillman, and Johnny Ace came out and met me as I was in my car and they're, you know, t telling me, look, you know, you walk away. You know, you don't, 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 don't let them screw you like this. You're going to walk out of a contract, blah, blah, blah. And I told them the same thing. You know, I said, guys, I said, if you can tolerate this lying bullshit and being told one thing and another thing happens, and if, if, if that's okay with you, then keep at it. I, I but I'm done with it. I, 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 you know, I, I don't find it professional. And, you know, look, if you if you think I'm a piece of shit and you're going to beat me, then at least have the Nazi come say, Shane, we don't see a dime in you. We're, you know, we'll keep paying you your 2500 a week, but we're just going to beat you every week. At least have the balls to say that, that none of them didn't. It was constantly, hey, we're going to give you a big push. Then we're not when we get to the field. I was done with that. And I let those three guys know, and I and I left. At the airport in Baton Rouge, uh, they have a, at that point, I don't know if it's changed now, I'm sure it probably has, but at that point there was like one little snack bar type store in there. And I was in there and it popped into my head because Eddie Gilbert was still living in Atlanta. Uh, and I called Eddie to let him know. And because Eddie had been confiding in me well before this, that there was a lot of all those different factions were fighting each other behind the scenes on the booking committee. There was a lot of pushing and pulling 
all in the opposite direction of each other. And so it was sort of like whoever got the ear today, you know, got the up today. And if you didn't get the ear today, then you didn't, you know, and that, that in our business, that is a kiss of death. That's a cancer in our business. And, uh, so I called Eddie and Eddie said, uh, what are you doing? I said, I'm, I'm getting ready to jump on a plane for Pittsburgh. He said, why don't you do this? Fly to Atlanta, you know, make your flight, go through Atlanta, spend the night, get up and come to the office in the morning and talk to Jim Hurd. So I said, well, it makes sense. You know, you know, if Jim doesn't know what they're doing out here, maybe he needs to. So I did that. Changed my flight to, to fly through Atlanta. And I went and stayed at the Ramada Inn where we always stayed with Delane. And uh, by the way, Delane, if you're listening out there, I love you. Miss you. Hope to see you. Uh, she's a great lady. I get up the next morning. I called the office and let them know that I'd be there. You know, made an appointment to see Jim. Heard. And got there in the morning expecting to get some resolution to this bullshit. And I walk in, I'm sitting there waiting. Jim Hurd comes in about nine o'clock and he tells me to follow him into his office. And I do. And as I sit down, he said, I, I, uh, something along the lines of, I know who you've been talking to and you're about to make the biggest mistake of your career. And I can prove it to you. So he starts leaping through his desk, like through like a little file cabinet behind his desk and one of the drawers. I mean, he's looking for papers. He's looking for this paper. He's telling me that, you know, I'm about to make the biggest mistake of my career that, uh, uh, WCW was on an upward trajectory and they were going to become the new number one. And, you know, it's giving me all this soliloquy. And it was pretty obvious at that point that we weren't a pimple on Vince's ass and weren't going to become a pimple on Vince's ass. Uh, they were a juggernaut at the time. And I had been talking to, to Pat Patterson for years at that point, you know, n- never asking for a job, just, you know, checking in and saying, hey, keep my, my name in his mind and, and to pick his brain. You know, could he give me any kind of pointers? He finally finds the paper he's looking for and he pulls it out and he extends his arm with that paper and it says, uh, take a look at this. And as I go to reach for it, he pulls it back. And he said, now, being that you're a professional wrestler, you probably won't understand this. <laughs> oh, fuck. And I remember thinking to myself, you ignorant fuck. I've got two master's degrees. I'll understand anything you got on this fucking desk. And that's what I said to him as I snatched the paper out of his hand. What he had was, uh, it was a list of TV ratings. At that time, there were still a handful. Like Portland was still in business. Memphis was still in business. I can't remember Mid-South. There were like six or seven different smaller promotions that were still operating at that time. And they, he had all of those, WCWs and all of theirs added up. And it still was like, like 1.9% behind Vince's singular rating. So all of us added up compared to his rating, and we were still behind. And what he was explaining to me was those ratings prove that they're closing the gap and going to soon become the new number one. And so that was why I was making the biggest mistake of my career. And I looked at it for a second, and I started laughing. I said, do you understand what you're reading here? Because I don't think you do. Uh, And that was it. I threw it back on his desk. I said, Jim, thank you for the opportunities. Uh, I'll take my chances. And I left, and on the way to the airport is when I called Pat Patterson to let him know I was out of my contract. If something should, should open up up there in, uh, in, in WWF, that I'd be interested. And on, on that call, he hired me, uh, but just with an opportunity, not for any kind of position. And we're still waiting on them to close that gap uh, today. Yeah, yeah. Just If you just cross your fingers and hold your breath and 
pretty, pretty pleased with the cherry on top. They might just get there one day. So Jim Cornette said the dynamic dudes were the most unpopular intended baby faces of all time. What do you think of that description? I think it's about accurate. But if you look, but if you look at it, you know, it, it's uh, again there was this this uh, this hopscotch herky jerky start stop debut of the, of the of the tag team. Right, there was never. Like a like the old Steve Austin saying, if Vince Man wants to get you over, he'll strap a rocket to your ass. The dudes never had the rocket strapped to their ass. You know, we were put in the into these angles. You know, like uh, for instance, with with uh, Michael and uh, Michael Hayes and, and Jim Garvin, and then beaten, and that was after us winning some matches, and then you know we go in with with Sid and and Danny and get beat, and and then thing with Jim Cornette turning on us, beat, and you know, so there was this constant like half-assed push followed by strings of loss no wrestling talent in history has ever gotten over that way without the intended idea being like a mikey whipwreck we're going to beat him beat him beat him and then slide him over no tag team especially one that you endeavor to be the next rock and roll express ever got over that way i hear tell of some johnny sucks dick chants from the fans that has to be something really hard to overcome as a new babyface tag team well, it was, but, you know, again, the irony of the fact that I, I would later become, you know, such, make my career in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. And the reason for that irony was when we would fly into those Northeast towns, the Northeast towns were typically heel towns. But I remember like when we would come flying into Philadelphia, once you'd see, you know, the ground coming up at you, you'd get like this sickening feeling in your stomach because it didn't matter what you did in the ring that night, that crowd was just going to boo you out of the building. You know, so it's hard, but in high Hindsight, looking back, you learn. I, I learned a lot from that. It doesn't matter what what the reaction is. You still have to go out and deliver professionally the goods. You know that, and that was one of the things that I, you know, that I remember sticking out of that. But I hated. We hated going to those northeast towns because of that. You know, it didn't matter. You could have gone out. Not that we did, but you could have gone out and put on a ten star match, and the, the place was going to boo you out of the building. And let's face it, you get into those hardened northeast cities. And, and here you've got these two good-looking young bleach blonde guys coming to the ring. It's not exactly the, the formula for, for what a, a hardened Northeast big city wrestling fan is going to bite into. When was the last time that you spoke to Johnny Ace? Oh, God, it's been some time. I would say, well, probably the last time face-to-face was in, uh, I, I want to say 2006, but it doesn't sound right because it doesn't seem like it could be that long, but it could very well be. that It was the last show that they were having at the Pittsburgh Civic Arena. And I took my oldest son, Connor, who was much younger at the time. Uh, I took him there because I wanted to take my son to the the venue that my dad had taken me, his grandfather had, had been to. Johnny was there that night, of course, but we didn't talk much. You know, he, he was pretty busy with those TV tapings. Joey Styles had got me my ticket when I, Johnny saw me, came over, hey, how you doing? You know, we, you know, we talked for, I don't know, five, ten minutes, and then he went off and had to do all the stuff he had to do for TV. TV taping, but uh, that was the last time we spoke face-to-face. So Johnny Ace, John Laronitis, is the brother of Animal from the Road Warriors, Legion of Doom. From a fan perspective, these two could not be any more different than they are. Knowing both of them, are there similarities that the fans don't see between the two of them? Yeah, their personalities are very similar. You can definitely tell they're brothers. I think Johnny, because the way he came into the business, you know, he wasn't that big muscle head and a you know, huge guy. Johnny had to work 
in a different vein and a bit harder, I think, than Joe had to. Not that I don't mean that they didn't work hard again, like they obviously did, but I think harder in a different way than Joe had to coming in. He, they, they, John, like I said earlier, Johnny had that temper. You know, Joe, the same temper that we have with Joe. And I'll tell you a quick story. One time, you know, Joe and I have been friends for decades. Great guy. And, you know, just to, when you're on the road that long, you got to do things just to sort of let off some steam and pressure being on the road. And I would be that little smart ass that would always have like some comment at the end of every sentence or, you know, just some little comment afterwards that would dig it a little bit. I've been doing this for two or three days on the road to Joe, just, you know, just digging. And Joe would take it and he would take it and he would take it. And this morning uh, we go to the gym and little digs and little digs and he took it and took it. We go to eat and little digs, little digs and he took it and took it. We get back to the hotel. It was one of those hotels you could pull up to the door. You know, he's at the door opening the door and I, I forget what I said to him, but I just took another dig and he turned around and he was going, oh, you stupid mother of a skinny little fucker and rip your fucking head off. He's shut the fuck up. And he opens the door and he goes into the bathroom. Well, I hear him in there pissing around and stuff. And I sit down on the bed and he gets walking out. I put the, the old boo-boo face on, you know, and he comes out of there and I said, uh, I'm sorry, Joe. I thought we were friends. And he started the poly. He goes, I'm so sorry, Shan. I didn't mean <laughs> So I got you again. <laughs> but he, uh, you know, I, I still joke, joke about that to this day. But yeah, he and Johnny, I mean, you can definitely tell they're brothers. But as far as in-ring style and stuff, you know, I think uh, Mark, uh, the Terminator, had much more what the fans if you put the three of them in the room people would think that mark and joe because they're built similar and, and move similarly in the ring than than you would johnny and joe so would you say you're closer to uh, animal than you are to uh, john Laronitis? probably but i think because i see joe quite frequently johnny and i always got along great that that was what made you know we talked jokingly and i do probably more than most people about the dynamic dude's gimmick it wasn't a bad time on the road you know, like Johnny and I got along great. We had great guys to travel with, with Brian and, and Zank and Austin and, you know, all those guys. So it wasn't like, you know, you're on the road with a guy you can't stand. And, you know, it, it was nothing like that. You know, Johnny and I did get along pretty well, but very different kind of people. You know, Joe, Johnny was more of a guy that wanted to go out and have his fun. And, you know, I was more of the guy that wanted to go back to the room and, you know, watch ESPN or whatever and, and you know, relax that way. So, you know, a lot of differences. But I think that was what part of what helped us get along so so well because we were very different type people. Do you have a good road story about the dynamic dudes you wouldn't care to share with us? Well, there, uh, there, there's one, but because you know Johnny's uh, married uh, now, and you know, I don't know if it'd be the most copacetic story to tell, but uh, nah, you it, haven't it, talked it, to him it, since 2006. Let it go. <laughs> it entails rats and hotel rooms, and you know Johnny was infamously on the road. Somebody, I guess we call him an exterminator right when it comes to rats <laughs> he was pretty good at exterminating the rats so i guess we're not gonna get the story we're just get the get the the roundabout well actually i, I can't I, there, there's one story i can tell because it, it's not so much johnny it, it, uh, we were staying in st louis and we had go, driven to evansville indiana that day a really long trip and i was sick i had the flu you know just a the, the road's miserable at times to begin with but when you're sick with the flu the road is like a torture you know just miserable 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 and so we go, we wrestle, and the whole way back, you know, Johnny's doing the driving, so I'm freezing cold one second, sweating the next, and ready to vomit, and diarrhea, and, you know, all, of the, all the symptoms. And I get back to the room, and he goes down to the bar. I go to the room, climb into the bed, and, you know, zonk out, take some medicine, and zonk out. Some period later, I... 
I hear the door open, unlocking and opening, and I assume it's Johnny. You know, I see the, the light crack of the door comes in and the door closes, and I hear somebody getting undressed. I'm assuming it's Johnny coming in, right? He's he, partying and he's going to bed for the night. I feel the the blanket start to pull back, and I said, Johnny, wrong bed. Blanket keeps pulling. I said, Johnny, wrong bed. Other bed keeps coming back. Starts to climb in. I start kicking. I said, Johnny, what the fuck? You're, you're in the wrong bed. You're in the wrong bed. And I hear a girl's voice saying, Johnny sent me. So, oh. so, you know, a few things happened. Not what you think. I turned the light on, and this girl had eight fingers and eight toes. What? So I said to Johnny, I said, so you send me the eight-toed sloth. <laughs> you're, you're such a great part you send me the eight toed sloth you know not even sloppy seconds it, it could have been <laughs> so that's that's the closest story i can give you to john larinitis story that that wouldn't get him in heat with his uh, new wife eight toes and eight yeah. fingers nice yeah. So, yeah. I, so you didn't bang her right of course not <laughs> I, I, I wasn't that type of guy that's right. You didn't. You never had sex on the road, ever. Never, never. We've already learned this. I know. Well, that about wraps it up for the Dynamic Dudes. Go ahead and put a bow on this episode by giving me your final thoughts on the dudes. Again, like I said a second ago, the you know, for good reason, the dudes get derided. You know, for for all the right reasons. The shame of it is, I really believe that that tag team could have become. You know, I, I I would never be so pretentious to say it could have been the next Rock and Roll Express because again, you've got you know you know a very teeny tiny list of of of, of teams that became that. You know, those guys are still outperforming, doing incredible jobs. You know, so you know that you talk about lightning a bottle. The the uh, Rock and Roll Express certainly is that. But with the stated intention of that tag team being something that appeals to the young girls and to the kids that could have very well been it but wcw as all things wcw dropped the ball by never really giving us that, that extended push that would be required to get over and then you know like i said the wins on tv against enhancement teams and then losing to the other teams in the field too much push to pull and certainly never the the the, the, ra- the rocket that steve austin speaks about so eloquently uh so they you know the wcw dropped the ball on that and the money that they invested into that team you know both in salary and and you know in enhancement matches television time and in in paraphernalia that we bought on the on the Turner uh, credit card, they, they they never even attempted to make the return on that investment. But again, I think that is the the overriding story of the WCW. You know, you had how many people? You know, you can go back and from that point moving forward, and how many singles and tag teams did they do this with? You know, and it, it's not hard when you start looking at it from that point. Again, I'm reading the book Nitro right now. I've had it for some time, but there's no time to read. Uh, but when I get uh, about halfway through it right now, you know, and you hear this story over and over again, this this wrestler or team that they brought in and put all this money and time and effort into and then got nothing out of. From the fans' point of view, it's easy to sit there and say, well, Johnny and Shane couldn't draw. When, in fact, if you know how a team is built and gotten over, you can go back and follow along and see that push was never given to the Dynamic Dudes. So with all that said, and I've said this a million times publicly, and I'll always say it because it's true, that was the first time in the business that I was able to really save money, to really put money away, to make more than I was spending on the road. And it was also the first year I had to pay a shitload in taxes because of it. You know, I was still living like a pauper, you know, trying to save money because I was so used to doing that for the early years of my career that I didn't realize what a tax shelter was. You know, I'd put all this money in the bank, six figures in the bank. I'm thinking, man, I'm rich. You know, this is great. I'm, you know, 
know, you know, keep saving like this and I'll be good. And then, then the tax time came around and I sent the IRS a considerable check that pretty much emptied the coffers. That's when I began to realize what a tax shelter was and started doing everything I could to build some of those tax shelters because... You know, for anybody out there that's unfamiliar, the IRS will more than take your money out. My next door neighbor, just her granddaughter, went and worked all kind of overtime and made like grossly like, over $1,200 for this overtime for the month. She got her check and they took over $1,000 out of 1200 in taxes. So make sure if you're out there and you're a young kid, Google tax shelters and do them because you know, I'm not saying to, to, to uh, give the same advice my dad gave me as a kid. Pay the IRS every dime you owe them and not a penny more. Tax shelters are the way to do that. Well, that's some great advice for the franchisees. That's your homework. Look up, uh, look up tax shelters. And I've got some more homework for you because it is time for me to tell you what your flying with the franchise tasks are for the week. Now, I will tell you this. We are not finished qualifying people for this week, but we have 668 qualifying entries into the contest. So, and and there are still more qualifying every single day. I'm qualifying more people, but here are your tasks. Are you ready? Got my pen and paper. Send a picture of you and Shane to franchised with Shane Douglas at gmail.com. That means that you have had to have met Shane at some point in your life and took a picture with him. But if you send me a picture of you and Shane to franchise with Shane Douglas at gmail.com, you will qualify for the contest. Now, nice. Graphic designers, I'm talking to you. Send your best idea for a franchise with Shane Douglas t-shirt design to franchise with Shane Douglas at gmail.com. If you are a graphic designer and you can pull off something like that, it might be worth your while to go ahead and put together a t-shirt design. Not only will you qualify for the contest, but if we use your t-shirt design, We'll send you the t-shirt. Qualify that way. Graphic designers, send your best idea for the franchise with Shane Douglas t-shirt design to franchise with Shane Douglas at gmail.com. Number three, share the flying with the franchise poster to an AEW group on Facebook. There are tons of AEW groups on Facebook, and all you have to do is share the flying with the franchise poster to an AEW group on Facebook and send the screenshot to franchise with Shane Douglas at gmail.com. Boom, you're qualified for the contest. Now here's another one. Share the flying with the franchise poster on Twitter and at franchised SD and at a current AEW wrestler. Doesn't matter which one, whichever one's your favorite, at that wrestler, send the flying with the franchise poster and also at franchised SD on that post and you will qualify for the contest. Now here's the last task for the week. There is a Stephen P. New ad that will be placed on the Franchise with Shane Douglas Facebook. You take that Stephen P. New ad and share it from Franchise Facebook to your Facebook page, and boom, you are qualified. Now, of course, Stephen P. New is our big sponsor for not only the show, but he's also the big sponsor for the Flying with the Franchise contest. And uh, when you share his ad on Facebook from our Franchise Facebook page, now you have to share it from the page so that way I know that you did it. And boom, you are in the contest. Now, that's that's a good list of tasks, would you say? Hell yeah. I, I'm going to do that last one because I, 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 I'm I going to have to try like hell to win this thing because... Uh, 
I think people would be a little disappointed to be on the franchise airlines in those Shane Douglas. So I'm going to have to do that last one and uh, share Stephen P. News uh, ad because I, I, I got to make sure I'm on that plane. Once again, Shane, way too many chair shots to the head. You're already on the plane, buddy. I won already? Yeah, you've, oh, you won You won the day you became Shane Douglas. Oh, shit. That long ago? <laughs> that long ago, yes. And we're just now getting getting to do it. Now, let's I've talk. Been sitting here writing these, I've been sitting here writing these things down like by the letter and getting all the punctuation right and everything else to make sure I, I have it exactly right. Now you're telling me I won I, I wasted all this paper. Well, that's okay because you are setting a good example for the franchisees. They definitely need to write all these down and complete them because you can get in the contest. 10 times your name can be in there 10 times so if i was out there trying to win this contest which i've already won as well well not the plane part i'm gonna drive to miami and meet you guys there but if i was trying to win this contest i would want my name in there 10 times i want all my chances oh yeah why not i mean if you get a chance right and, and look you know they, you know from what I hear, I've grown up listening to stories about Elvis Presley and the debauchery that things that happened on his private plane, and the, uh, the you know the debauchery of you know, groups like Metallica and Pink Floyd and Kiss, the things that went on in their private planes. Uh, so you can just imagine what's going to be going on the debauchery. I mean, we might have like a like a, 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 a you know like some kind of streaming ESPN football game, basketball game, hockey game on during there. We might even have, hold on to your hats, we might even have a cocktail or two on the franchise airlines. It's, it's going to be crazy and nuts. It is going to be crazy and nuts. It's going to be a great time. But you know what? Next week, we are going to have a great time as well, or at least I am, because we are going to be talking about my favorite ECW pay-per-view of all time. Are you ready for this? Actually, mm-hmm. you already know this. You already know this because if you remember correctly, on my birthday about five years ago, you came to Beckley, West Virginia and sat down at a bar with me, just me and you, and watched Hardcore Heaven 97 all the way through. Do you remember that? I do remember that, yes. Yes, and that was that was my birthday present to myself, was get to sit down with Shane Douglas <laughs> and watch Hardcore Heaven 97. And now next week, the episode is about Hardcore Heaven 97. We're going to go through everything, even the matches you weren't involved in, and we're going to talk about everybody that was involved in that pay-per-view, and I am super stoked about it because I love Hardcore Heaven 97. And all the backstories of what was going into those matches and things that were going on backstage and – you know, all the different little uh, nuts and bolts of it. Uh, you know, I'm sure the fans get it and understand it, but especially the hardcore fans. But, you know, into a pay-per-view, especially with a company like ECW, because we were all so hands-on. We had to be. We didn't have a PR department and a, you know, a production department. We were, we were all that. And so there was all kind of backstories that were going into each of these pay-per-views. And Hardcore Heaven was, was no different. So there would be a lot of good stuff to talk about next week well also that is the last week that you will get a list of tasks after after next week the note there will be no more tasks there will be no ways to qualify after those five are are listed that's it that's your that's your shot now january 3rd is the day we'll be announcing the winner of the contest
podcast, and that episode is going to be all about Taz. Ooh, from okay, start to finish, so. we'll talk about everything about Taz. We'll talk about the first time you met him. We'll talk about every match you ever had with him. We'll talk about all the storylines, and we'll talk about all the backstage gossip, and we will find out everything in the franchise's head about Taz, one of one of your biggest rivals. Brother. Yeah, absolutely. He was uh, you know, a lot of good stuff to talk about there because Pete, Taz, and I had you know great chemistry. And to me, he was like the personification uh, of the kind of character that the franchise could have his best matches with. He was, you know, powerful, could could do all that stuff, but he also could chain wrestle his ass off. And, you know, it was a very, very believable on-screen character. And, and it, you put all those things together and, uh, you know, you really have a mixture for a great combination. And the thing that made those great was that Pete, once he had found his, his legs as Taz, uh, really became a great promo and you go back and watch some of those promo shots back and forth there none of it pre-scripted none of it teleprompted thank god uh that was him and me going back and forth on the microphone having no idea what the, what the other one was going to say so there, there's a lot of really good stuff if you haven't watched lately or ever been familiar with the the, the heat between me and taz peace and urcha I go give me, the dean's going to give you an assignment this week. Go back and watch some of those build-ups to the matches and the entire angles, and then go back uh, as you watch them. Bring some questions uh, to what you want to hear uh, in, in that episode because there there was a lot riding on ECW in the transition as champion from Shane Douglas to Taz, and we'll get into all that. Now, January tenth episode is going to be special because we're going to be doing the third edition of interrogate the franchise. So send in your questions as soon as possible. The reason why we're doing this third edition is because the first two the first two editions of interrogate the franchise, I think there was probably over 500 questions submitted. Now, of course, we didn't get to 500 questions, so I'm still going to be picking out of that lot, but I am encouraging the franchisees to send new questions for interrogate the franchise part 3, which will be on January 10th. Nice. I, 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 hit, I hit, went to hit, hit the button to light my screen up. I hit the mute. So can you hear me now? I can. All right. Yeah. Man, no, no, excellent. No, that's what I love about the, the fans. When we get questions sent in like this, first of all, they rekindle a lot of memories, you know, because it's like I said before, it's all back there somewhere. And, you know, when you've been blessed to have as long a career as I've had and going back and reliving a lot of that uh, really makes it fascinating. But I love that the fans, you can tell from the questions, they know the franchise character, they know my history. And they know the interactions that I've had with the people that I've had them with. So the questions usually come from a well-thought-out point. I hate answering the same question over and over again that's been asked 10 million times. That's what I love about Hannibal TV, right? Hannibal, Devin Hannibal, Hannibal always asks great questions. You could tell that he knows the franchise's history because those questions all emanate from there. Same thing with the franchisee's questions. You know, keep them coming because I love answering those kind of questions. Now, finally, January 17th, the episode is going to be all. All about AEW Bash at the Beach. I know you're going to watch it. You're going to watch it all the way through because I'm going to be sitting right beside of you, and I'm not even going to let you go to the bathroom. So you're going to have to tell everybody what you think of every match. We're going to go over the entire card, which we don't even know what that card's going to be yet. There hasn't even been a match announced for Bash at the Beach, but we're going to watch the whole show live ringside, and then we're going to do the uh, next episode, which will air on January 17th, about AEW Bash at the Beach. So there's four episodes that you can look forward to um, coming up. 
Next week, Hardcore Heaven 97. The following week, Taz. The following week, Interrogate the Franchise Part 3. And the following week, right after we get back from Flying with the Franchise, we will talk about AEW Bash at the Beach. And I absolutely cannot wait. Stop thinking about it for that. Those are all great episodes, but I'm I'm, I'm sort of zeroing in on the last one. First of all, for, for the... Two people that win seats on franchised airlines and get to go to AEW. First of all, like a nice little vacation in the middle of winter. Uh, but secondly, how many people, and then I slap on the back to myself, but when I was a kid growing up and watching wrestling, if I would have been able to go to a show with a Harley Race or a Bruno San Martino or any former world champion and have that champion dissect that show for me, tell me what's being done right, what's being done wrong, how it could be done differently, man, I would have... <laughs> I'd have gone insane for something like that. So this is a pretty big opportunity. And, and you know, to be quite honest with you, I'm very interested to go to one. I, I, for me, watching a monitor, like watching a video screen, does nothing for me. I mean, I can watch and I can sort of get stuff from that. But I've, my generation was always taught to feel the crowd and pay attention to the crowd. So I want to be in the building and I want to feel what the energy is in, the, in, in an AEW building. And I want to see if, if, if the reactions are, I hate to use the word, but organic to what we're seeing in the ring is, is it, you know or is it just hey, a, a can contrived response or whatever but there's nothing like it doesn't matter wrestling any kind of live sports entertainment any kind of live entertainment uh, you know you watch a kiss uh, concert on on a video screen it's pretty cool but you go to one live and you stand there in the midst of it and it's fucking insane so i'm i'm really eager to get there to the aew show and see how this thing plays out and see how it comes out and i'm hoping 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 that they give us what i know they're capable of giving because like i've said all along i think they're really shooting short of what their ability is well i agree with you and i cannot wait to go and see this with you and then talk about it uh, afterwards, it's going to be a great time for franchise with Shane Douglas. I got to talk to you about one more thing before I let you go. Um, we were talking on the name game episode. It's in the archives. If you want to look it up, the name game. And we talked about Macho Man Randy Savage. You were talking about being Troy yeah. Martin as a young startup in the business and getting to to take on Macho Man Randy Savage and him actually giving you some, some uh, offense. We found that match. And put it on Franchise with Shane Douglas Facebook. Now everyone can watch that match, and it's awesome. The picture that I sent you the other day and was like, hey, were you 12 years old in this picture? That was the picture. You were staring across the ring at Macho Man Randy Savage, and we've got the video on Franchise with Shane Douglas Facebook. So make sure you check that out. And I'd say you probably need to check that out. It's probably been years since you've even seen it, if you've even seen it. No, I haven't seen it in years, so I'll definitely be, uh, be heading there tomorrow and checking it out i uh in that look in that picture you sent me in my head i was nervous as shit scared shitless not scared of randy it. but but nervous in you know i'd never been in front of a crowd that size and i'm now you're in the ring with randy macho man savage uh you know there was a lot really going on in my head in that picture like you said you can see it but no i wasn't 12 i was 11 and a half in that picture <laughs> Yeah, I believe it, man. You look so young. It's it's crazy to even think that that is the franchise from ECW. I'm just like, wow. That, that's the son of the son of the son of the franchise. <laughs> right. <laughs> it's sort of like looking at those uh, dynamic dudes photos and being like, yep, that's the franchise. It's like it doesn't even yeah. make sense at all. But yeah. Uh, yeah, there's no connection. It is what it is, and you've been a lot of different faces in your career, and I'm glad it ended up as the franchise because 
because that is why we're here. Because this is Franchised with Shane Douglas. Now, Shane, take us home. Hey, ho, ho, fucking ho. Merry Christmas. Happy holidays to all the franchisees listening. And remember in January, January 15th, Franchised Airlines will make its inaugural flight to Miami, Florida to go down and see the AEW event. If you haven't gotten your name and information in yet, as Brian has told you to do, go to ShaneDouglas.com and get it. Because if you don't, you won't get the chance to win. And if you don't... <laughs> You'll get your ass franchised. <laughs> Ladies and gentlemen, the following contest is a special tag team event. Introducing first, from the city of sunshine, total combined weight, 454 pounds, Shane, Shane, the Dynamic there they are, Crispy, Shane Douglas, and Johnny Ace. A couple of Sunday school faces, you know, but they're a couple of real rugged young kids. They've made a name for themselves in the NWA, and they want that United States Tag Team Championship featured right here on Worldwide Wrestling. Is that a smile? You know what I'm talking about. That's a charismatic young man, Shane Douglas.
Live. This has been a product of Superior Radio Network. Some law firms talk about quickly settling your case without going to court. Other law firms focus on taking your case to trial. If you have a serious personal injury or a wrongful death claim, you need a law firm that can do either. The Law Office of Stephen New. Experienced enough to make the insurance company settle your case and pay your money early, tough enough to take them to court and make them pay if they don't.